When most people think of the book of Revelation, they think of visions of heaven, of fantastic pictures of the glory of God, and of all sorts of strange creatures. They don't think of seven letters to churches in Asia Minor. So if you've been just a bit disappointed in our study thus far, today is your day. We've concluded the letters that are found in chapters 2 and 3 and are now ready to move into the visions that have made Revelation famous. Revelation chapter 4, verse 1. After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard, like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me, said, Come up here. And I will show you what must take place after these things. The revelation that was given to John, you recall, began on the Lord's Day. As John was worshiping on the Isle of Patmos. John, who was by now a very old man and the last of the apostles, had been taken to Patmos as a political prisoner. He was therefore isolated from the churches that he loved when Jesus spoke to him and told him to write in a book what he was about to see and to send it to the churches. John was then given a vision of the glorified Christ standing in the midst of seven lampstands that represented the churches and was told to write down specific messages from Christ to each of the churches. These messages reflected Christ's intimate knowledge of the conditions that existed in the various churches and the problems they were facing. He praised them for praiseworthy things and called upon them to repent of things that needed to be repented of. And from these letters, we've been able to discern the historical setting of Revelation. We've seen the churches under fire from within and without. We've seen how the Nicolaitans had infiltrated many of the churches with their teachings of compromise and, and loose morals. We've seen how the synagogue of Satan, the antagonistic Jews, had hounded and intimidated many in the church. And we've seen official governmental persecution beginning to build against the churches. We've even seen Antipas, a pastor at Pergamum, killed for his faithful witness to Christ. Well, all of this helped prepare us to understand the significance of the visions we're about to see. Because they were first presented to the Christians of Asia Minor around 95 A.D. and spoke directly to their situation. And this we must always keep in mind if we are to honestly interpret the revelation. Well, as we move into chapter 4, a major scene change takes place. We're transported, as it were, from earth to heaven. After John had received and had written down the messages to the churches, he looked up. And there, in his vision, he saw a door to heaven. And the voice he had previously heard, the voice like the sound of a trumpet, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after these things. 
Now, up until this time, the action in John's vision had all been taking place on earth. The glorified Christ was on earth, walking among the churches, speaking to each of them. And the messages primarily dealt with the th- way things were. Now the scene is changing to heaven, and we're going to be told what's about to take place. But before we get to that, beginning in chapter 6, we're given a vision of the throne of heaven. Let's take a look at that this morning and see who is on the throne. Immediately, I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was standing in heaven, and one sitting on the throne. And he who was sitting was like a jasper stone and a sardius in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne, like an emerald in appearance. Immediately, John says, he was in the spirit. Now, as we've noted before, we have no way of knowing what exactly that means, to be in the spirit. Most likely, it simply means he was caught up in the ecstasy of his vision, and he lost conscious contact with his physical surroundings. And the first thing he saw in this vision of heaven was a throne, and one sitting on the throne. Now, we must remember that this is a vision. John hasn't been physically transported into outer space and brought into the literal throne room of heaven. In fact, there is no literal throne room in heaven. God isn't a physical being who sits on a physical throne in a physical heaven. God is spirit. And God is omnipresent. He is everywhere, not just sitting on a throne in the sky. Now, he may manifest himself on a throne, as he does in this vision, or for judgment, but I really doubt that there is actually a literal throne. The judgment seat of God is a symbol that helps us visualize a time of judgment. And the throne John sees in this vision is there to help him and us visualize the reign of God. And if there was one thing the early Christians needed to be reminded of, it was this, that God was on his throne, that he was still reigning over the world. Domitian, The Roman emperor at the time was claiming more and more power for himself, even claiming to be a god and demanding to be worshipped. And when faced with the awesome power of Rome, it would be easy for even Christians to begin thinking that their destiny was in the hands of the emperor. But John's vision of the throne of heaven reassured them that God was still in control, that he was indeed still reigning over all. Now, the way God is pictured is quite interesting. Notice there's no attempt to really describe God at all. He's not pictured as an old man with white hair and a flowing beard. Instead, John says, he who was sitting was like a jasper stone and a sardius in appearance. Now, this doesn't mean that God looked like a rock sitting on the throne. 
What John is describing here is the radiance that proceeded from the throne of God. All John could see was the glory of God. And it reminded him of the radiance of precious gemstones. Now, what stones John was thinking of, we really can't be sure. There's no way to know for sure what an Aispide and a Sardio is. Most scholars seem to think the Aispide was a jasper or perhaps even a diamond and therefore gave off brilliant flashes of white light. And the Sardio, a stone from around Sardis, was a translucent reddish stone similar to our carnelian that flashed of red. And some have seen in these colors symbols of the, the purity and holiness of God and the judgment of God. And that may well be. The primary picture, however, is simply one of the glory of God. A glory that was then accentuated by a rainbow around the throne. A rainbow that John says was like an emerald in appearance. Now, again, we're not sure what stone the Greek word is actually referring to. The word is smargadino and could refer to a greenish stone similar to an emerald. That could mean the rainbow or perhaps a halo around the throne gave off a soft green cast. Or it could refer to the prism effect of a gem cut like an emerald that project a rainbow around the throne. Either way, it accentuated the glory of God. And it may have been intended also to picture the promise of peace conveyed through a rainbow or through a soothing green color. But let's not spend all of our time focusing on that. Let's not be distracted by conjecture concerning the details of the vision. The details are there to enhance our picture of the throne of heaven and the glorious God who sits upon the throne. And that picture is further enhanced when we see what is around the throne, verses 4 through 7. And around the throne were 24 thrones. And upon the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting, clothed in white garments and golden crowns on their heads. And from the throne proceed flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And in the center and around the throne, four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first creature was like a lion. And the second creature like a calf. And the third creature had a face like that of a man. And the fourth creature was like a flying eagle. What a picture. What a picture of, of awesome majesty. And power. Around the throne of God are 24 thrones. And upon them are 24 elders clothed in white with golden crowns upon their heads. Now, the specific identity of the elders isn't given. And that's led to much speculation. Some believe these to be representative of 24 angelic orders who minister before the Lord, as did the 24 elders of priests and Levites mentioned in the Old Testament. The 
problem with that, however, is that nowhere in Scripture are we told there are 24 uh, orders of eagles, eagles, of angels. And nowhere are angels called elders. You should have saved that laugh for now, because now I'm ready for it. Now, as I've already noted, according to my text here, preachers may very well be referred to as angels in Revelation, but angels aren't elders and vice versa. Okay, now you can laugh. Okay, thank you. All right. All right. Another suggestion. Another suggestion is that these 24 elders represent the 12 sons of Jacob from which the Israelites descended and then the 12 apostles who were instrumental in establishing the church. Combined, they would then represent all of God's people cleansed and clothed in white and reigning with God. That, I think, is a real possibility. Others, however, suggest this is simply a vision of kings sitting in the court of heaven who, as we'll soon see, give homage to the king of kings. Whatever their identity, they emphasize the majesty of the throne in the center. And that is their purpose. And to draw us back to that center throne, John then notes that flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder proceed from the throne of God. And that throne is the focus of our attention. In addition to the flashes of lightning that illuminate the throne, there are seven lamps of fire burning before it. These, we're told, represent the seven spirits of God, or the Holy Spirit, which adds even more splendor and glory to our vision of God. John then says that before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass, like crystal. This, too, has led to much speculation. Some suggest that the seven lamps, in addition to being symbols of the Holy Spirit, are the heavenly counterpart to the seven-branched lampstand in the tabernacle. And the sea of glass is therefore the counterpart to the wash basin or laver that was used by the priests for ceremonial cleansing before ministering before God in the tabernacle. Others identify this sea with the sea of Revelation 21 that will be no more when the new heaven and the new earth come into existence. They therefore view this sea before the throne as some kind of barrier that separates a holy God from his people and will do so until that final day. And then others have noted that in Exodus 24.10, when Moses was in the presence of God, he saw under the feet of God what appeared to be a pavement of sapphire as clear as the sky itself. The sea of glass could therefore be nothing more than a crystal floor upon which the throne was set, which reflected the radiance of God's glory and the flashes of lightning and the lamps of fire that would certainly enhance the vision of God's glory. Finally, John notes that encircled by the 24 thrones and close to the throne of God, were four living creatures, full of eyes, in front and behind. The first creature was like a lion, the second like a calf, 
the third had a face like a man, and the fourth like a flying eagle. And we'll discover in verse 8 that each of them had six wings. Now, again, we can't be sure what these creatures are other than heavenly creatures. They're very similar to the cherubim of Ezekiel's vision, except each creature in his vision had all four faces mentioned here, one on each side of their head, and they only had four wings. The similarities, however, do seem to indicate that these living creatures of Revelation are also cherubim, exalted angelic beings that stand before the Lord. The significance of the various faces could indicate that the cherubim have the strength of a lion, render service like an ox, have the intelligence of a man, as well as being swift as eagles. Or they could picture representatives of the primary orders of created life, the wild beasts, the domestic beasts, the birds, and mankind. Those who hold to this understanding claim this demonstrates how all of God's creation worships and honors him as a sovereign creator and sustainer of life. And that is possible. It's perhaps even more likely that these creatures are simply the cherubim of God, there to honor and glorify him. And that's exactly what we see them doing as we read on to discover what is taking place before the throne of heaven. Verse 8. Now the four living creatures, each one of them having six wings, are full of eyes around and within. And day and night, they do not cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. And when the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to Him who sits on the throne, to Him who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders will fall down before Him who sits on the throne and will worship Him who lives forever and ever and will cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy art Thou, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For thou didst create all things. Because of thy will, they existed and were created. It becomes very obvious here that the purpose of this vision is to vividly demonstrate that God is a God of glory and honor and power. And that he is therefore worthy of our praise. And our worship. The living creatures were there to sing, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, to give glory and honor and thanks to Him who sits upon the throne. And as they honor Him, the 24 elders fall before Him and cast their crowns at His feet, recognizing that He alone is King of kings, and that everyone must humble themselves before him, even kings and emperors. He alone is the creator of all things. He alone is the one who was, who is, 
And who is to come? He alone is God. And that was exactly what the Christians living in the Roman Empire in 95 A.D. needed to hear. Domitian, the emperor who claimed to be God, paled into insignificance before God Almighty. His threats and his persecutions and the havoc he brought upon the church could be withstood as long as the Christians were confident God was on his throne. And the same is true today. No terrorist organization or ideology or economic hardship or ecological catastrophe can defeat us as long as we know God is on his throne and that he still has all things under control. That is the message of Revelation. No matter how bad things are today, or how bad they may become tomorrow, we must never forget that God is on his throne. And as long as we are acceptable to the one upon the throne, our future is secure. You know, the picture of a glorious, all-powerful God on his throne can be the most comforting picture imaginable. Or it can be the most frightening. So how does it affect you this morning? Does it comfort you or frighten you? If it frightens you, you need to do something about it. You need to make certain that you are acceptable to the one on the throne. And you do that by accepting the one seated at his right hand as your Lord and Savior. If you've not done that, I invite you to do so today. I invite you to publicly acknowledge your desire to accept Jesus as your Savior, your willingness to be buried with him in the waters of Christian baptism, and your commitment to make him the Lord of your life. If you'll do that, he will wash you, dress you in white, and make you acceptable to the glorious Father.